You're listening to a podcast from Washington Post Live, bringing the Post's newsroom to life on stage. This Washington Post Live podcast is sponsored by Raytheon, protecting every side of cyber. Spyware, viruses, disinformation campaigns, those are just a few of the threats posed by malicious state actors, rogue hackers, and others. Our efforts to protect critical data and improve the country's cyber capabilities proceeding at a fast enough clip? On Wednesday, October 2nd, the Washington Post gathered technologists, government officials, security experts, and other leaders in cybersecurity to discuss these rapidly evolving issues. In August, a coordinated attack crippled 22 Texas towns. Over the past year, governments in Florida, Georgia, Indiana, Louisiana, and Maryland have suffered similar fates. In this segment, a top DHS official talks about how federal agencies are working with state and local governments to reinforce digital infrastructure and keep our data safe. Let's listen. Hello, everyone. My name is Joe Marks. I am a uh, cybersecurity reporter for The Washington Post. I write the Cybersecurity 202 newsletter, and I'm here with Jeanette Manfra, who is the Assistant Director for Cybersecurity at the Department of Homeland Security. And we're here to talk at least partly about ransomware, which I think a lot of people are familiar with. It's um, when hackers not only steal your computer files, they also they lock them up and won't release them until you pay a ransom in Bitcoin. And this has just been a huge problem that has hit um, cities, including Baltimore and Atlanta, um, some major industrial players, just small towns, police stations across the United States. What's, what's DHS and the government doing about it? Uh, sure. So for those of you who don't know, I'm from the uh, Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, which was established by Congress um, close to a year ago uh, to be the federal government's central point for um, leading cybersecurity and uh, physical uh, infrastructure security and working with our, um, our partners in the private sector and state and locals. And um, so first, also, if I may, today is the second day of National Cybersecurity Awareness Month. For those of you who are not aware, you are now aware. <laughs> and um, and and so and and the um, the recent sort of uh, spate of ransomware attacks really highlights the the theme that we've decided to focus on, which is um, about accountability. And both as an as an individual, we're all consumers, uh, we're all employees uh, of an organization. Some of us run organizations, and so how do we think about um, how we own IT, how we secure it, and how do we protect it? And importantly, we're also very much focused on those um, organizations who don't have the hundreds of millions of dollars of resources to to do all of these things. Oftentimes, in the cybersecurity circles, we talk about very advanced, sophisticated, sexy concepts. Um, and the reality is, as the ransomware attacks have, have shown, is uh, a willingness to attack the most vulnerable uh, organizations, um, you know, people who are willing to um, stop schools from functioning, hospitals from functioning, municipalities. That takes a certain sort of low uh, kind of criminal to, to do that. And, um, and, and so we're really trying to step that up. And it's also, I mean, in addition to being 
pretty malicious. Are these people relying on you know the the, the brightest and best new hacking technology? No, not at all. Um, much of the uh, technology that they're using is you know sort of commodity malware that you know anybody can can find and and run. Um, there is some more sophisticated uh, stuff, and it is there's definitely some some money in this, and, and in many cases um, it, the incentives are a bit misaligned when you have um, you know we, we don't want anybody to pay out because that just encourages future is there ever a situation problems. when they should pay out you know it, I always say you should uh, you shouldn't pay out mm -hmm. that being said I'm not the person in the midst of, of making that tough decision about what's going on, and, and I don't fully understand what what their risk calculus is, and um, and when you have insurers and others that are you know going to, to cover that, that furthers our problem of that misalignment of incentives. Uh, we're trying to focus more on building the resilience and, and getting the tools we're going to be releasing uh, very soon, um, a, a set of cyber essentials, you know, just a place, a lot of small, medium businesses, state and locals, they come to us, and while we spend a lot of time focusing on very high-end threats, you know, to the electric sector, to our elections, these things, um, a lot of people just come and say, where can I start? What, what do I need to do if I have, you know, $5, where am I putting that $5 towards? And so um, so this month and, and really beyond uh, with our essentials, we're going to continue to focus on that community. Is that a new thing for DHS to be focusing on the small and medium businesses, the, the $5 problems rather than the $5 million problems? I wouldn't say it's it's new. We have, um, you know, we've worked closely with, um, you know, state and locals, with small and medium-sized businesses. I think what's new is that we're really stepping up and prioritizing our efforts there. Oftentimes, the $5 problem can turn into a $5 million <laughs> problem, and many times these, you know, just the interconnectedness of everything, um, many of these organizations um, might be uh, public safety, and or they might be um, connected somehow in the supply chain of a, of a larger sort of traditional critical infrastructure. So we don't think we can separate the, those two communities as much. One ransomware problem that your office has talked a lot about is the concern about a ransomware attack from Russia, from anyone that targets statewide uh, voter databases in, in advance of the 2020 election. Mm -hmm. What are you doing to prevent that? Um, well, so first I want to be clear that um, there's, there's not a specific threat that we're aware of. We're just more sort of logical extension of, as we're seeing this, that um, that, is a, that is a potential scenario. And um, the, there is uh, very basic things to prevent um, uh, yourself from becoming a victim of ransomware, backing up your systems, updating. Um, and so um, that's not something the federal government can do for these organizations, um, nor do I believe it's our role to do that. Um, but what we are doing is, is publishing more documents. Um, in August, we published a specific ransomware, partnering with um, associations and state and local leaders, mayors, and others to get that message out is, you know, thinking about where they're taking that IT money and spending it on preventive measures, uh, and also being able to understand how the federal government can help them in a, in a response scenario. So big picture, after two years of working on this problem since the 2016 election, mm -hmm. how confident should Americans be that the 2020 election will not suffer from a compromise by Russia or another hostile actor? You know, I think I'm, I remain very, very confident that our, the, the tally of the votes 
um, you know, the, the actual vote count itself will, um, will be faithful to what the, what the voter actually put into the machine. And um, uh, former Secretary Chertoff talked uh, a little bit about, you know, the, the, the broader sort of architecture. Some of the things that we've really focused on that increases our, our confidence, and, and I'm talking just about election infrastructure, not the disinformation, which is separate but related, is um, in, in 2016, I saw sort of three main gaps. Um, the first was around visibility. Uh, the you know how how do federal and state and locals have common visibility on both the threat and, and how it's actually manifesting in their systems? Um, you know, re recognizing that the, it's not the voting machines that are uh, necessarily connected, but there are systems that are potentially accessible remotely. Um, so we focused a lot on visibility. We um, uh, spent a lot of time and effort um, to the point now where we have um, sensors uh, covering all 50 states. And um, so that's a huge improvement. And that allows us to take intelligence information or others, uh, either from the federal government or from uh, threat intelligence companies, and, um, and quickly sort of ping those sensors. The other thing was ensuring that we had an understanding of a um, communication protocol. So in uh, in 2016, if we had intelligence that somebody was a potential victim or a target, um, you know, our, our practice is to go to the owner of that system. And um, and we needed to work out to make sure that the, the senior official in charge of elections in the state also had visibility. So that was something that we worked out in, in exercising that. And the last thing was really about how to speak to the public and make sure that the public is getting the facts. And, and, and this gets into the the disinformation side and and so we did some really unique things um, having an exercise with um, with media um, so that they would understand um, how how the election day would unfold um, making sure that we had um, quick abilities to run down if somebody's posting on Twitter that a voting machine is behaving erratically like did happen in, in 2018 we were able to quickly run it down and, and realize that you know nothing was going on there but we were able to, to get the facts to um, to the media and the public so those three areas we continue to um, focus on, and I think in 2018 we're able to really demonstrate a level of like cross, cross party, cross sector, cross federal, state, local sort of coordination that we weren't able to do in 2016, and um, and we'll continue to expand that, including now the private sector, those who do make the voting machines and the e-poll books, all of those in that uh, in that coordination leading up to the elections from the time that first absentee ballot is sort of mailed out all the way till the final vote is, is tallied. So, I mean, despite all of the work from DHS and other agencies, uh, hackers at the DEF CON Cybersecurity Conference in Las Vegas looked at a bunch of voting machines that are going to be used in 2020, found vulnerabilities of some sort in all of them. Um, there have been other reports about uh, voting machines that are connecting to the internet when they shouldn't be. Um, possible supply chain issues. Should the American public be concerned about that, and how, do, how, are, how should they think about those vulnerabilities? Um, you know, I think it's important to think of these in, in context. Um, you know, if you uh, and the need to still work through the report from the DEF CON voting village, but um, want to make sure that it's that what was done there is how real life mm -hmm. sort of happens. So that's an important thing. Um, people who work in cybersecurity, we have a term called defense in depth. You're, you're not sort of dependent on one machine being fully secure all the time and not ever be able to be hacked. You put a lot of things in place, both physical and um, you know personnel, as well as technology. And 
and that's really what we're focused on with um, state and locals. And frankly, something that they've done for, for years if you even just think about the transparency of the voting process, every time votes are tallied, you have observers from both parties looking at the, the tally of those votes. And so there's there's going to be a lot of indicators in place if um, something wasn't adding up, if it seemed like there was some sort of uh, misalignment of votes. We still um, remain, you know, sort of focused um, about any actor who seek to um, spread disinformation or um, dissuade people from, from voting, and, uh, and that's always a concern and that starts way before election day and so we want to continue to to work to you know make sure that people understand where their authoritative sources um, that they can you know get a provisional ballot even if something on the you know um, registration is, is not showing that they're eligible to vote so you spent a lot of the last two years trying to get technology from companies that you don't trust in nations that you don't trust the russian antivirus kaspersky and the tele chinese telecom huawei off of government systems are you working on, and has there been any progress on figuring out a way to get things more uh, secure up front so that you don't have such a long process for the next Kaspersky, the next Huawei? Um, well, so that there's a there's a few things there and it could easily take multi hours <laughs> to talk about it um, on the kind of the secure by design sort of concept and in, in thinking about how do you how do we have more um, secure code and there's a lot in the software community that is working on this we're continuing to work on and how do you build more secure coding practices how, do, how is there transparency so you know um, you know a lot of a lot of products are a compilation of, of you know different sort of code that comes from different places or from different programmers um, that may come from different countries. How do you have transparency in that? Um, that's, uh, that's something we'll just have to continue to evolve. Hardware, similar sort of, how do you have that transparency and where your hardware came from? From our perspective, what Kaspersky really taught us is um, you, you, can't, you, you can't have a very sort of blunt approach and say, well, everything from X country is bad and we can't use that. Um, our economy just doesn't support that. We've chosen to outsource a lot of things over decades and we can't just flip that switch. Um, we do want to get to a point where we have more trusted capabilities. Um, but what we, what we really learned is we have to, the threat's important. But you can't just sort of hope that you will get to a point where you have this perfect case of a, a, a company is a witting agent of a foreign intelligence entity, and there you go. Let's just let's just get rid of that. Um, instead, we're a very risk-based organization. What we what we kind of came to is um, sort of three components of thinking about, um, and we would encourage others. And, and when you're procuring your IT products and services, is um, the, the country's laws of either where the product comes from or where the data is stored is important. And um, there are certain laws that regardless of whether a company wants to, it would be want to cooperate with their government or not, there are laws in Russia and China and others that would compel that company to provide that data, which was the case in Kaspersky. And we weren't comfortable with that. The, the second part is the level of access to your system or your data that um, that IT product or service has. There's a lot of things in IT that don't have a tremendous amount of access to, to data. And so that's a really important consideration. Um, an antivirus tool has a lot of access. Um, and so that's kind of the second. And then the last thing is really thinking about market penetration. We're coming at it from the US perspective is, you know, if it meets those first two things, but it's just not something that's used in the US, um, that's something to keep an eye on. But it's also not something that we need to sort of overly focus. So when Congress passed the um, 
uh, uh, Secure Technology Act last December, which didn't get a ton of press. It happened to be the, um, past the day of the shutdown. Um, so other things happening. <laughs> um, but it was, it was a really important piece of legislation because it set up the framework by which the government could do what we did in Kaspersky, but it gave us the tools to do it in a more sustainable, enduring fashion. And, um, and so that's what's happening right now is we've stood up the Federal Acquisition Supply Chain Council. Um, I represent DHS on it. And, and that'll allow us to have a more systematic and open process for um, being able to ban these things. The other thing that we learned with Kaspersky is it's, um, it's important to do it in an unclassified and, and frankly even public way. Um, the reason we did it publicly was for due process. We wanted to ensure that anybody who would potentially be negatively impacted would be able to have a voice in, in, our, um, in our decision. And, and what that resulted in is a lot of people now sort of that don't follow under our directive authority are now following our, our guidance. And so we're able to impact the larger ecosystem um, that that doesn't necessarily have to follow our orders in, in any way. And it looks like we're out of time. Thank you so much, Jennifer, for coming. Thank no you, everyone. Problem. Thank you. Thanks for listening. To hear more interviews from this series and other Washington Post Live programs, visit us at WashingtonPostLive.com.